You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Amy Seedman, who is the founder and CEO of Noble Profit and BFLO Technology. Noble Profit is a sustainability information and technology company. BFLO is a technology to help businesses and investors track, report, and verify sustainable claims. On today's show, we talk about what are some of the lessons you learned when transitioning from a media company to a technology-heavy startup, what is environmental, social, and corporate governments, ESG, and what we should know about it in our futures, what government groups or changes in laws should people be prepared of, and much more. We are coming live from the Sapien Impact Hub in Menlo Park, so stay tuned for an amazing live recording of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now let's begin. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Amy, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, I'm super excited because, well, it's that time of the month where we're filming live at the Sapien Impact Hub in Menlo Park. So the last few interviews here have been absolutely fantastic. And I know this one's going to be that level or even higher. In fact, I, I believe it's going to be up three, four notches from the last few interviews. So, I mean, I know your background, but can you tell our audience a little bit about it? Absolutely. Very nice to be here. It's a pleasure to be a part of the Sapiens Impact and this podcast with Silicon Valley Podcast. My background actually is as a creative. I was a photographer and a filmmaker, and I owned a design studio doing some of the first websites uh, for WebPoint 1.0 back when websites first happened. So wait, you went from Web 1.0 to right now, this blockchain tech company. There's a little bit of a, a little bit more there. Can you tell us a little bit more about this journey? Absolutely. So in, I guess, the early 2000s, we had a very tumultuous time with our country, kind of like where we are now. It was a period of time that I was doing a lot of soul searching, and I ended up starting a brand called Incredible Places because I wanted to apply my work in media and technology towards doing things that would help the world. I began this brand that was around national parks and interpretive media, museum exhibits, educational programs, but it was very hard to raise money. And when I went out there, corporations would say, how am I going to make money? I started to say, I'm going to build the game. And when I went to start raising money for the game, I went to a Stanford Tech Summit and I started to hear about clean tech. And I realized, oh my God, we're in a place that we can transform the world by just changing the way that we are using our resources. So I, it was a pivot point for me. And I started a new brand called Noble Profit. And Noble Profit is about how can we take action using technology, using media? How can we inspire with media, educate through data? and take action through technology to help transform the way the world's resources are being used to solve the world's greatest challenges, because we can do that. So I'm kind of curious right there, because here in Silicon Valley, everyone goes out and raises VC capital. Everyone's raising friends and family, angel. But it sounds like you kind of bootstrapped it. How are you able to grow a company without taking outside capital? I've been very blessed in that I have an incredible team, and I don't think we intended to go so long without raising external capital. I've personally invested in the company as well. Not um, the current company, your past company. Well, oh. it is the current company, actually. Oh. Uh, Noble Profit, we reformed as a public benefit corporation. And then BFlow, which is the technology that we're developing, is, is 
a part of that. It's a project of that company. And we're at what's called a social venture hybrid, where some of the work that we're doing is nonprofit and really with great intention. Any of the work that we're doing is really designed towards having a deep intention to do transformational work in the world. But it, the intention is to be a profit company. However, the mission that we have is so important and we're doing such a disruptive technology that if we were to have taken the hockey stick Silicon Valley money, we would have been pressured to push ourselves in a direction that would have had a lot of compromises. So it became very important for us to nurture and grow what we have without that external influence and to only accept money from very strategic investors. Going back, that media company has been around for a number of years. Can you tell me some of the milestones or some of the things that were the big accomplishments in this life cycle of this company? I had the privilege of interviewing 220 leading experts in clean tech impact and sustainable business, which actually informed the technology that we're building today. And the intention was, how do we dispel the myth that being sustainable costs more? There's companies that are making money hand over fist and being much more sustainable from an economic standpoint by being conservative in how they're using their resources. The numbers just don't add up for it being a losing game. It's actually a really big opportunity. It's a huge opportunity. And when people think about sustainability, they actually think about philanthropy. They don't connect it to the fact that literally $50 trillion of the world's resources under management are moving into ESG investments and climate. And that's only going to continue. And that's half of the world's money. So when you hear about sustainability, it's not philanthropy. Philanthropy is a part of it. You did 216 interviews and no one in the audience seemed to clap. I wonder if the audience is even there. And twenty, but probably a few more. It's just some ended up on the cutting floor. They're just not valuable. So, of those two hundred and twenty interviews, what are some key moments or or interviews that you had where the person said something that you're like, "Wait, I need to take my company for what I'm doing now to what I'm well doing then to what you're doing now." Oh my God, I can't boil it down to one. There's so many. I mean, I had the privilege of interviewing some of the top investors in the world, some of the top companies. And to be able to observe this transformation that we're in now, that a lot of people aren't aware of, how companies are restructuring, how investors are, are moving capital into things that are incredibly transformative. So I don't know if I could boil it into one interview. It was really, you know, I'm a systems thinker, and it was really a, a combination of many, many different points that helped form this vision and form this understanding that we're building upon. So your vision isn't really for today, but it's for tomorrow. How are you as an entrepreneur thinking about, I mean, there's that common saying, you know, you think of where the puck's going, not where it's been. How are you able to think about today, tomorrow, and even five years down the line? Well, I've always been a bit ahead of the curve. It's a blessing and a curse to be early. Sometimes people think that being early is uh, not necessarily the, the best place to be. And in some cases, I've been tenacious and I'm still here and now the world is catching up. So the big vision for tomorrow has to do with creating an open, shared intelligence system that we can see the checks and balances, we can see the truth behind uh, corporations, behind investment, and to be enabling that uh, voice of, from all stakeholders. But today, we're a tool. So we're very much thinking about today because today requires that we have something that people will use. 
it's really about being relevant today. It's, you have to be relevant today. Although blockchain is a very long trajectory, and we spent a lot of time doing the analysis and, and building the tools that we've been building. Whoa, you just threw in a buzzword right there. You're going to have to go in a little bit deeper. How does blockchain impact or a part of your company? Like, why do you throw that out there right now? Our world is changing. And in the same way that 10 years ago, nobody thought that you would be investing online. Nobody thought that you would be buying everything or renting a room in someone's home. But here we are today. And when the internet first came out and email came out, I was like, oh, you know, that's quaint. I never thought that that would be like my main mode of communication or that my phone would be my computer. That's what's happening with blockchain. 10 years from now, the world will be completely different. We will be experiencing things in ways that we haven't even imagined that some people are just on the cusp of. I wish I could see the world through your eyes because I'd love to see the vision that you're, that you're already picturing. But going back to your startup, I mean, here, the, the podcast, the Silicon Valley podcast, we really try to get tidbits of information out there that entrepreneurs around the world can use. Your company is set up very differently than most companies. <laughs> most companies you hear, yeah, we set up at Delaware, C, C Corp, you know, and now, now we're good to go. But your structure is a little bit different. Can you talk about that? Well, actually, we are a Delaware company. We're a public benefit corporation. So we chose a designation that would emulate and enable us to bake in the principles that we have behind us. Delaware has a public benefit corporation status that you can have a mission and a vision. So once we get bought out, that mission can't be dismantled. That mission must stay true to the company. So it's really been important for us in terms of the trajectory and what we're building to create a tenacity and a legacy. Now, does that worry maybe some of the people on the team or investors that you've talked to, or does that excite them of this, things can't be changed? Well, it's not that it can't be changed, and, and I wouldn't even take that stance. I mean, the things that investors, traditional investors might look sideways on is, and, and something that we did that was so unusual is we have a lot of founders. We have a lot of people who've contributed to the company over many years that I recognize that are part of our team who are stockholders, so our cap table's a little long compared to you know, the early founders where there might be two or three people. We have people who've contributed and given great value, and we're recognizing them with stock. And the blockchain company is a totally different structure, and it's designed to be a, uh, eventually a foundation and to be a nonprofit. And oftentimes, people who are doing traditional investment, they don't quite get these new models. It's really finding the right investors who understand that when you create a blockchain company, that structure might be completely different than noble profit. But if you're familiar with Ethereum, which is one of the big blockchains, and then there's a company called Consensus. Consensus is, is the public company that is doing the execution with the corporate clients. And so noble profit kind of fits that. We're, we're doing the campaigns, we're doing the, the building and the engagement. And Bflow is the technology that we're using, but we're designing it in a way that it can be decentralized, which requires that it's open source, which requires that it becomes available for just about everybody to participate in. So it's not a monopoly. It's, it's, it's a very different way of thinking. So unless you're in that space, sometimes it's hard to wrap your mind around it. Now, what type of research did you have to do before any of this to know that this is how you wanted to set things up? I did a tremendous amount of research. I actually, every, I had known that I wanted to use Ethereum very early on, and I really didn't have any clue about the money. 
I wish I had in the very beginning because I'd be exceptionally wealthy at this time. But uh, at one point in 2000, early 2017, I had a lot of people like in about two weeks, four people say, why don't you build a coin? I'm like, why in the world would I want a money? You know, I just didn't understand it. But because four people had said that to me, and then I caught some information online about a consortium with JP Morgan, I realized, wow, I should really pay attention and understand this. So I started investing myself. And I felt before I can ever ask an investor for money, I'd better understand what I'm doing. I'd better have an understanding for myself. But that was the biggest rabbit hole that I've ever entered in my life because cryptocurrency, investing in blockchain, and just the blockchain industry in itself is just, it's like a whole other dimension. And I got very sucked in and I explored doing an ICO in 2017. And I was advised because of the kind of clients that we want to have used the company that at the time, it wouldn't be the right move for us. And in, and in some ways, that, that was great advice. In some ways, it was terrible advice. The great advice aspect of it was that many of the clients that we believe are essential to use our system for us to be successful would absolutely not use our system if we had taken money. And we would have been a marketing machine. It would have been really about having memes and greedy investors who really don't care about the project dumping the tokens. And that was not the intention and the moral fiber that we needed to start the company with. So I took myself out of that that thought process and, and said, this isn't the right move for us. The right move for us is to build this. The right move for us is to have engagement with it. The right move is to do use cases and pilots and to prove our model and to build it and bake in the kind of governance and the kind of principles that we believe are absolutely necessary for creating a future that is a new model of how we can create transparency around the financial system that would eventually lead towards what we're calling reputation finance. And in order to do this, we had to also put in the basic principles of ensuring the little guy has a voice. And if we had gone the traditional Silicon Valley route, and if we had gone the crypto investor route, in both cases, we would have been compromised. So I'm very proud of where we are today. And I feel we have an incredible value. And I know that the world is finally waking up and understanding. Because three years ago, people didn't really understand what we were doing. It was like Greek. You know, I talk to people, I talk about ESGs or sustainability, they think philanthropy, like I mentioned earlier, or I talk about blockchain, oh, Bitcoin. You know, people really didn't get the picture. But now, now people are starting to understand. They're like, oh, wow, you're doing that. Wow, it's time. There's a lot of questions there that I want to ask you about the reputation currency, about the global mindset. But before any of that, I want to go back to how did you stay strong during that period when everyone else was saying, do this, do that? I mean, I think nine out of 10 or probably 10 out of 10 people would have caved in and been like, quick money, let's do it. Oh, I've, <laughs> I don't know how strong I've been through every moment. I've had moments of doubt and I've been in shadow and wondered if I was crazy a number of times, worried that I was missing you know, the greatest opportunity of my life. And then I went to Davos in 2019. I hadn't been for a couple of years. And we're, we're focusing on the SDGs and data. And this was where... SDG for the oh, audience? Sustainable Development Goals. Thank you. The United Nations has this uh, set of goals which represent the challenges of the world. How can we solve the greatest challenges? So for agreement amongst all the different sectors from government to finance to corporations, 
we have this uh, set of goals that we're all kind of agreeing to meet together. And it's a common language that we can use together to, to achieve these goals, to solve these great problems. So I had taken our technology and used that as an anchor point. About four or five years ago, I saw that corporations and banks and governments and NGOs were using this, all starting to move their data models to connect with this. I said, okay, here's finally my common language that I can use. And so there was a period of doubt, this like dark period of like, am I crazy? And going to Davos, all of a sudden is like every other doorway is SDGs. And then I'd meet like the head person at Deloitte. And she's like, oh my God, shoving her card in my hand. You know, we're looking into this. We're trying to figure this out. And I knew that I was on the right track. But then we had COVID hit. We had a number of peaks and valleys. And I have to tell you, there have definitely been moments where I'm like, oh my God, I hope I made the right decision. But I do feel in my heart that it has been. So when you're at Davos and, and all these, I mean, it sounds like you had a global mindset. How are you positioning your company for not being successful just here locally, but globally? Well, I think just the nature of doing things online, the internet is definitely the forum for being global. You put it out there, you are global if somebody can find you. Part of the thinking, we evaluated like 3,500 different use cases and pilots. So over the past years, I've been accumulating, gathering, pulling in data and analyzing like thousands of different kinds of use cases to ensure that our concept and our models could be refined to address these common points that are, we've identified amongst these sets of, of information so that we could create this commonality. And then you have to focus. <laughs> you know, you could boil the ocean and then you got to pick a lane. So we've boiled a lot of oceans. We went down the apparel route. We've done CSR uh, use cases. We've done COVID use cases. We've done finance use cases and on and on and on. And it really became like, okay, you got to focus in and pick a lane. So right now we're, we're working on finance and how can we be of service there? Because we understand that it will move outward from there. And then with ESG, environmental, social governance, SDG, sustainable development goals, what should we know about that before we dive deeper into your company and what you're working on? Well, I explained the sustainable development goals. That's this UN adopted set of goals that started with the Millennial Foundation, I think it is. And that's this agreement that governments and corporations and financiers have agreed to start to meet. The ESGs uh, mean environmental social governance, and those are pretty much on the balance sheet of just about every corporation. And what's happened in the past 10 years is that this ESG metrics of how companies are operating, how are they meeting their environmental goals? How are they helping on a social basis and how are they handling the governance within their or their organization becomes a very significant part of their KPIs and of their balance sheet. So when you start to look at companies, it is not only being evaluated on their performance from a financial standpoint, but how are they treating the people in the company? Are they embracing diversity? How are they handling their footprint of carbon? How are they handling the vendors? Is there slave labor in their supply chain? Significant changes have happened in the past 10 years in terms of value in companies being much more than just the financial balance sheet. So how many other companies are entering this space? Are a lot of startups or is, are you just finding yourself in, in blue ocean, right? 
Well, we were very much the the outlier <laughs> in the beginning. But I mean, there's tons and tons of companies that are doing ESG reporting and measurements. Everybody, you know, KPMG to the PWCs, you know, the big five, to Bloomberg, to Thomson Reuters, to Sustainalytics, MSCI. I mean, on and on and on. You have organizations that are serving to help crunch this data. But fundamentally, there are a lot of problems where you can't see what is made up of this data. And so I think we offer something very unique and very different. And BFlow and what it's constructed and why it is being created as a blockchain company with governance and with this kind of what will eventually be the governance of the network to have a checks and balances system is something that each one of these companies cannot do alone. It's something we have to do together. So right now, how is this information being tracked? How is it being pushed to the consumer? Are there things happening that us as consumers may not know about with some of our brand name clothes or shoes or wear, that we're wearing in the whole logistics supply chain? For one thing in our supply chain, unfortunately, and many people don't realize, we have 40 million slaves in the world. I mean, that is like an astronomical number. And it is so crazy to even think that we have slavery in the supply chain. When you're saying slavery, do you mean sweatshop slavery or slavery slavery? I'm saying slavery slavery. We have forced labor. We have all different kinds of slavery. So there are people, when you eat your seafood, there are people who have left home to get a job and end up in a boat and they never see land for years on end and end up eventually dying and being pushed over the edge because they are just beaten. And nobody gives a damn about them. They're out in the middle of the ocean and there are boats that come and bring the food, take the, the fish that they're buying. And, and this is something that there's a lot of different technology being developed. You have this in cobalt. Amnesty International flagged some of the big companies of the world, Google and Samsung and um, Apple, to uh, address child slavery within the supply chain out of the Congo. And they formed an alliance with Amnesty International and they came up with a solution. But unfortunately, they couldn't take the solution further because they couldn't address the geopolitical issues. So in some cases, you're, you're not only addressing this greed within the supply chain, and it doesn't mean it's the company itself. They want to eliminate this. And in many cases, they're trying. It's just we have such fundamental issues facing us when we're looking at how we address supply chain. And a lot of that is driven by the cheap things that we're buying. And you know what's so amazing is this jacket I have is created by a company, Indigenous Designs, who I absolutely love. And there's absolutely no slave labor. They have collectives of organic farmers and Indigenous nuclear family businesses that are these artisan women that are coming together and knitting these wonderful clothes. So it is possible. And if you use technology, we can make that less expensive, less time-consuming, and remove the barriers of creating that so that we can actually all have great things. Plus, there's circular. I don't know if you're familiar with circularity, but there are the ability for us to have a product designed from the very beginning so that you will never have it go into the landfill, and that every ounce of the, of the design of that product can be created in a way that can be enhancing lives can be making the world a better place, can be reducing climate change. And it's really about us fundamentally just shifting a little bit about how we do things. So right now, are there government regulations or laws being discussed or talked about to kind of play a part in these 
the supply chain, these decisions, what's going on? Well, in the past year, it's great that you asked that. In the past year, we've had the EU, Europe, pass what's called the Sustainable Financial Disclosure Regulation, which is a requirement of financiers. And uh, in many cases, there's other laws that they enacted for companies to give transparent disclosure beyond the ESG. How did you make that ESG number? And it's become a part of the regulation. And the SEC has the Securities Exchange Commission in our country, in the United States, has come up with an oversight committee. There is rumor that there may be similar regulatory pressures, but certainly there's a lot of pressure from many directions, from investors to purchasers and buyers to just about all angles. Now, let's go back to what was mentioned earlier, some of the vocabulary that was thrown out there. You mentioned reputation finance. What what is reputation finance? Can you go a little bit deeper into that? Well, it's the idea that if you are creating a positive impact on the world, and I'm not just talking about being business as usual. So we have the people who are trying to make a buck and they're going to make a buck at someone's expense. That should be de-incentivized. You should not be getting the same kind of investment if you don't care and you have slave labor and you are just doing whatever you can to make a buck. But then you have companies that are doing everything from the very beginning of every aspect of the design of the company, how they treat their employees from from the design of the product to their sourcing down to how the product is actually disposed of. And those companies should have a benefit. And what we're seeing is that those companies that can prove that they are doing very positive things in the world, that they would have a better interest rate on loans, that they would be more favored in terms of investment. And I see this translating into what will become the next generation of finance using blockchain called DeFi, which is decentralized finance. Many people in the blockchain world who are involved in decentralized finance believe that everything's going to be running on smart contracts, that we absolutely won't have any banks. And this is part of that next generation that we haven't imagined yet. And in order for that to happen, you absolutely need to have the intelligence in order to inform whether or not these companies are good. And I think that's the place that we're really going to be powerful and meaningful. So how are you taking all this technology, what's happening in the government, happening in these corporations, how are you combining them all into one? First of all, we're not going to do everything at once. And depending on how much money we have, we'll do a lot more. Today, we're a tool. Today, we're a tool that people can use to answer those sustainable financial disclosure regulations for transparency. And we can start to create something that gives a more three-dimensional view to the ESG footprint the environmental social governance that's being reported on the balance sheet so that we can find out a little bit more about how they achieve that goal so that we can see what has been verified. And then over time, as we grow the data and the system will become more and more valuable, we can include a ton of public data. We can include a ton of scrape data, but I don't think that's going to differentiate us against some of the best in the world. And when we look at things that we're going to add value to. It's not about replicating. It's about filling a piece and connecting those networks. It's about solving the missing link. So that's really where we're focusing. And over this journey as a CEO, what skills have you had to develop? 
or what were some things you had to overcome to get where you are today? <laughs> some advice for, for the audience. Well, first of all, I feel like I've gotten an unofficial master's degree in business. I started owning a design firm, doing projects, which is a very different model than running a company. The skills that I had to develop range from understanding law, international regulations, money service requirements from state to state. Those are things I never thought I would ever think about. And then just blockchain in general. I mean, five years ago, it was new. And now I've learned just so much about so many different things. So I think that any entrepreneur, if they want to be really serious, is to be able to be willing to learn about things that they might not be so comfortable in. Coming from a creative background, this is all like a little bit of just a difference in my disciplines that I was used to and very different from the structures that I was used to. But it's also being available to bring in the talent of others who really understand. Like we have some incredible talent in our company. We have a wonderful finance director who's here today, GP Singh. We have a, a brilliant technologist, uh, Gary Fitz, a number of other some of the top sustainability people in the world from uh, Bridget Luther, and we've had advice from Gil Friend and others, and a marketing director, Tony Winders. So we have a lot of people bringing in information. And earlier today, we heard Kat talk about from the Sapiens about how when you have a diverse set of skills come together, you are more than what you could ever be alone. So I think any founder has to be available to bring in outside knowledge and outside information. And also earlier you had mentioned, I think it was 50 trillion going to be moved to this industry. Over what span was that again? And, and could you talk a little bit about, because th those numbers make anyone just their jaw drop. It's crazy. It's crazy. A couple of years ago, we started to see this divest invest. If you go to divestinvest.com, there was a movement to get families who have great wealth to pull their money out of fossil fuels. And that number was very impressive. And you had the Club of Rome, which is an organization that was formed, I don't know, four or five years ago, maybe longer, where they were really focused on this topic. And it grew like a snowball. Okay. And now with so much pressure from so many different angles and, and what we're facing, we have unprecedented issues that we're facing to, that, that we absolutely have to galvanize together to solve. And I think, I hope that we're not too late in order to solve these problems. But this 50 trillion is some of the latest numbers that they estimate 25 trillion is currently under wealth management designated into ESG investments, meaning companies that have positive ESG investment. And perhaps it might be uh, something on the balance sheet, but also how are they investing in private companies that are answering climate change and things like that. The estimate is that by 2025, we're going to have 50 trillion, but some estimate 80 trillion because of women and millennials controlling the wealth. You know, you have a, an old generation where you have a younger generation taking over with different values. These are numbers that have been calculated by UBS and Morgan Stanley and some of the biggest companies in the world. You have estimates by, I guess, you know, experts in the field that believe it'll be a little bit more. And Amy, if everything works out great, what are some milestones your company's going to hit in the next year or two? 
Well, one of the things that is really exciting is we started this lab where we're inviting some various different entities. We're actually doing a finance lab with the Sapiens. And so what I would love to see in the next year and a half is that people are using our decentralized open data system and that we start to see more clarity and transparency behind some of these changes and these ESG claims that are being claimed. So you have big companies saying, hey, we're going to engage a trillion dollars in climate change. Well, let's see how they're making that goal by 2030. So I'd like to see a gamification around sustainability. I'd like to see where people are complete competing, competing to have that best score because they know, even if it's selfish to get that 50 trillion, you know, invested in their company, that they're going to start competing and that we start to see that on a more frequent basis. Because right now it's only reported once a year. And I think we need to see it on a daily basis. So I believe B-Flow can be a part of that. And before wrapping up, is there any more information you'd like our audience here to know about your company, our audience at home? Any last minute things? I know I'm putting you on the spot, but if not, you know, what's the best way to get in contact with you and find out more about what you're doing, what, what you're, all the milestones you're going to hit in the future? Sure. We have a Twitter channel. So you can go to two. We have two channels, Noble Profit and B-Flow Tech. So you can follow us on Twitter on either of those channels or both. We also have websites, nobleprofit.com, bflow.io. And the things that we'd like you to know about is if you are interested in our lab and you want to participate or you're interested in our technology, reach out. Fantastic. Amy, I want to thank you again for your time on the Silicon Valley podcast. I want to thank Sapien for allowing us to use their facility for this recording. And I want to thank the audience who was amazing sports, who were quiet this whole time. But let's hear a round of applause. Thank you. All right. And that's going to end the Silicon Valley podcast. For everyone at home, please go to our website, thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. Go on iTunes, other platforms, and please give us a great review. It helps us get our message out there and helps us encourage, create great, more, great episodes such as this. And for anyone out there, if you are looking for an investment banker to help you go public, mergers, acquisitions, that's what I do when I'm not doing this podcast. So reach out to me on LinkedIn. But with that, Amy, once again, thank you for being here on the Silicon Valley podcast. Yay. Are we doing a QA? Yeah. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.